0: Welcome to a special edition of Veterans Chronicles. I'm Jim Roberts, president of the American Veterans Center, sitting in for Gene Pell. Our guest this week is General Richard B. Myers, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and co-author of Eyes on the Horizon, serving on the front lines of national security. A 40-year veteran of the United States Air Force, General Myers has held commands at every level, including Commander U.S. Space Command, NORAD, Pacific Air Forces, U.S. Forces Japan, and two fighter wings. He began his career as a fighter pilot, logging several thousand hours with more than 600 combat hours in Vietnam. General Myers capped off his career by serving as the 15th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the critical years following the attacks on September 11, 2001. Since his retirement in 2005, he has served on a number of public and nonprofit boards and holds the Colin Powell Chair of Leadership, Ethics and Character at the National Defense University. He has also been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian award. Our conversation begins with the events of September 11, 2001. Just a few
1: weeks before he was set to be confirmed as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I was on my way to Capitol Hill to meet with Senator Max Cleland, uh, then the senator from one of the senators from Georgia. And uh, it was prior to my confirmation as chairman. You go around, you meet all the the senators on the Armed Services Committee, make sure that if they have any issues, hopefully you can resolve them. In uh, face-to-face meetings, and I had been nominated to to be the chairman, but I was uh, the vice chairman at the time. The chairman, Hugh Shelton, was on his way to a NATO meeting, so he was not he was not there. And so that I, made you the acting chairman. I was the acting chairman. So when I walked into Senator Cleveland's office on the TV there, this was a little before nine o'clock, I think our appointment was for on East Coast time. Walked in, and and there on the TV was the first the, the pictures of the first tower in flames, World Trade Center tower, and. The newscasters were saying, we don't know, we think a plane hit it, but there was a lot of uncertainty about what had happened. So I think to myself, this is such a clear day out here on the East Coast. How could any pilot, and being a pilot, said, how could any pilot be so stupid as to run into the World Trade Center? But it didn't click yet that it might have been right. intentional. So going to the meeting, uh, a few minutes later, the second uh, tower's hit. We know something's up, so uh, come out, and I'm soon on the phone with the North American Aerospace Defense Commander, General Ed Eberhardt. Uh, talking about actions we're going to take to, to clear the uh, airways, land all the, the, the airliners, and sort this out. As I get ready to go to my uh, car and leave Capitol Hill, uh, the driver says, uh, sir, I just got a call from the office. The Pentagon's been hit. And uh, I said, oh, my goodness. So we've had world Tracing now the Pentagon. And so we rush back from Capitol Hill across the Potomac River, look at the Pentagon there, and there's this black smoke and flames rolling out of it. And you can't even tell what part's been hit. Hmm. I wasn't sure whether it was the side of the building where our offices were or, or where exactly it was. It turned out it was on the opposite side of the building of where our offices were, where Secretary Rumsfeld's offices were, and, and where a lot of the senior folks in the Pentagon, they they picked the other side uh, to hit. And I don't know if they picked it or that's just the way it worked out. Um, and people were evacuating because the building was on fire. It's right. a big building, so uh, fire alarms were going off, lots of people coming out. Um, helicopters had landed to take... Uh, a lot of the staff to an alternate site, which was part of our continuity of government plan. And um, I asked my military assistant, who was still in the building, I said, is the um, National Military Command Center up and functioning? And he said, yes, it is. I said, well, that's where I need to go. I need to go where we have people that are used to dealing with these things. We have our checklist to go through, and I need to go there so I can start uh, communicating and finding out uh, what, what's going on and what we, how we need to react. So it was a it was almost surreal, you know, walking back in a building where you could smell smoke. We weren't in any danger, of course, where we were, but there was smoke in the corridors. Uh, the fire alarm was constantly going off in your ears. Uh, we got in the National Military Command Center. It was a lot quieter in there, uh, and it was business as usual. We had a great team doing that, uh, as you would imagine, and, and just marching down uh, the checklist of things to do and coordinating all the various responses and taking all the information in.
0: As you as write in the book... Um... Uh, the atmosphere in the city was uh, somewhat uh, chaotic uh, in the sense that uh, Secretary Powell, I think, was in South America. Uh, the chairman was on his way to Europe. Uh, President Bush was in Florida. Uh, how did how did the response team get pulled together in this uh, environment?
1: Well, I, you know, it was uh, – and it was. It was a little chaotic because there were, one of the first reports uh, was that there was a, a bomb – uh, had gone off in front of the State Department. Mm-hmm. Okay, so remember we remember that we thinking, okay, is the whole city under attack? Turned out that was not a correct report. And then we dealt with reports all day long about other aircraft that were inbound, and particularly international aircraft. We could we could land all the aircraft here in the United States, but we had some inbound aircraft that had to continue on towards the United States. Could not be turned around, and and we had to ensure assure ourselves that uh, they were not a, a threat as well. Um, and then with uh, with the president gone, of course, the, the vice president and uh, national security advisor and assistant national security advisor, they they were worried the White House was a target. So they had to go to a alternate location in the White House. And But we had good communications uh, between everybody. It was a little – we were a little slow. The communications with the FAA were not perfect at first, particularly between the FAA and, and uh, North American Aerospace Defense Command out in Colorado Springs. But eventually that all got worked out pretty well. So we're on – what we call a threat conference, and mm-hmm. we kept that open for a long time as we're trying to decide uh, what to do. Now, Secretary Rumsfeld was in the building, in fact, when it was hit, correct? He was in the building when it was hit, and uh, his uh, initial instinct was to go out and help. So he went outside the building, went, walked around the building to the side where the airplane impacted the building, and he was out helping people uh, manage the scene out there and helping survivors and helping with triage. And uh, so when I got to the National Military Command Center, I said, you know, where's the secretary? He said, Well, he's outside helping. So he came in. As I recall, he came in with a a white shirt, sleeves rolled up like he had been working. And uh, he came in fairly quickly after I got there because he Uh he soon realized, well, there's enough people out here to help. I need to get back. And and then we started the work of trying to figure out, okay, who did it? um, What's going to happen next? Are there going to be more attacks? And how do we protect the American citizen and how do we protect our military forces, not only in the United States but around the world? Is this a larger – is this part of a larger attack on our forces or our interest around the world? So we started that ball rolling.
0: Of course, there was a great deal of uncertainty still at that point. Uh, I, I recall that the president did not return to Washington right away. He went – I forget where it was, the Colorado. Um, and he, were you part of that decision? He
1: went – I was not part of that decision. They were uh, – that was a White House decision on where he would go – but uh, he eventually wound up in, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, at at Air Force Base at our Strategic Air Command headquarters. And I remember we had a video teleconference with the president from that location. Again, there was so much uncertainty. Uh, are, there, are there more attacks coming? Right. If he comes back to the White House, is he is our head of state vulnerable? So um, he went to Omaha for a while, but then uh, came back to Washington later that, that afternoon. That afternoon, right. Um, and the chairman returned when? He returned that afternoon as well. I think at five or five thirty. He's back in the saddle and okay. in charge. And uh, um, I'd been working everything all day. But uh, I, as he came back, as I remember, Senators uh, Levin and Warner came over to the Pentagon, and they went down to a press conference with Secretary Rumsfeld, the two senators, and uh, General Shelton. And I wasn't needed at that, so I, you know, I went on and did other things at that point. Okay. You write in a
0: book that uh, uh, driving back to the Pentagon and uh, seeing this uh, black plume of smoke arising from the building brought back a, uh, a memory from your early boyhood that seared into your memory. Tell us about that. Well,
1: when I was two years old, and obviously I, I don't remember a lot about this, but I, I know the incident because uh, it's pretty well recorded uh, by, by the parents. Um, when I was two years old, 1944, World War II was going on. A B-24 uh, loaded for with fuel, headed towards uh, Europe. Eventually, uh, the pilot decided to go fly over his parents' home, and it, it was about two or three blocks away from where I lived. And it crashed. And I can remember the airplane falling out of the sky, the crash, and the black smoke again. <laughs> right. And, and I don't remember the flames necessarily. So the impact that had on me was every time I, from then on, every time I saw an airplane, I'd run in the house crying. Right. And it was starting to just. Concerned my parents, so they took me down to this doctor we'd been using, a family practitioner, and uh, full of common sense, which is not uncommon for those folks there in the Midwest. And he said, "Well, what's what's Dick like to do?" He says, "Well, he likes to eat," <laughs> and that was probably true. I still like to eat. So he he said, "Well, take him down to our Kansas City airport, and you can sit in the restaurant there. He can eat, which is something he likes to do, and he can watch the airplanes, and maybe he'll get used to to that." And and lo and behold, it obviously worked because. Uh, I took a flight on a TWA uh, plane from uh, Kansas City to Wichita. It was kind of the end of my therapy after I would gorged myself on hamburgers <laughs> at the uh, local airport or whatever they were feeding me in those days, and um, and of course became a pilot. So yeah,
0: what great advice from that doctor though? You know? It was wonderful,
1: and I I can almost remember his name. I know I think it starts with a W, but I I mean he was uh, his family ought to be proud because he just put some old common sense on it and it worked. Exactly. should
0: mention to our listeners that uh, this, this t- took place in Kansas. You grew up in Kansas.
1: Grew up in uh, the Kansas City area, right, right on right. the Kansas side, right.
0: Uh, like another uh, general that uh, one could mention, General Eisenhower, who uh, said he had the great privilege of growing up in a small town in...
1: Uh, in yep, in Abilene, Kansas. Kansas. And, and uh, General Eisenhower, and people said, well, who are your heroes? And General Eisenhower always comes uh, to the forefront for me because uh, he served in a very selfless way. During World War II, General Marshall wanted him to do all the major planning for uh, D-Day and all that business. And so he was stuck in the Pentagon as all his, his peers were going off and getting these great commands. Right. And he privately lamented that, well, I'm really disappointed I'm not in the front lines as a combat commander, but if they want me to plan here in Washington, I'll do that. And then, of course, uh, before it was all over, they made him the supreme commander right, right. of all our forces, and he performed magnificently and, of course, was later president. Indeed.
0: Tell us a bit about your your mother and your father and the influence they had on you
1: well um they were um, I'd say no nonsense, no um, n- no frills we we had a, a good upbringing they because of the depression, mom had to take care of her parents, so she couldn't get married because my uh, her parents lost a grocery store they had during the depression it gave out too much credit. people mm-hmm. didn't pay back. they finally lost a business. And um, but so they got married late in life and they didn't think they could have children. Then I came along and then two years later my brother came along. I think my mom was thirty-nine when she had me and forty one when she had my brother. And back in those days that was pretty old to, yeah, be, yeah. to be having children. So they they really doted on us, I would say. I mean they were strict disciplinarians, but at the same time, uh there's nothing they wouldn't do for us. And and my mom would sacrifice everything for her two sons and and dad as well. So it was a, a very nurturing a uh, very caring uh, environment, and I think, in a, in many ways, growing up in that time frame was idyllic. I mean, we had World War II going on, so we had our garden back and all that sort of stuff, and we were saving papers and and bacon fat, all those things that we were asked to do and metals. But uh, having said that, that growing up in in that time frame was was almost idyllic, and I think they um, I, I couldn't have asked for better parents. They were just they were wonderful.
0: Now in high school I know you you played a lot of sports but uh, before that your mother uh, was absolutely determined that you were going to learn music and appreciate it and so you had some lessons right she did <laughs> she uh, we,
1: we we had lessons the, the 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 problem would have been solved if we hadn't had the piano right in, right next to a big picture window in our house where I could look out and see everybody else playing outside <laughs> and I'm in there practicing and uh, but I love that part because I I still play the piano I'm not very good but I still play. I was able to play in a band in um, high school, and then later on in college uh, we had a little rock band. And, and, it, and it made enough money to play, pay for my books and incidentals at school while my parents covered the uh, the tuition. So it was, uh, I mean, I'm glad she did. And then I eventually took up the saxophone after that for, uh, as part of the rock band deal. So. All, right. All right, General, we have to pause
0: for a brief commercial break.
1: We'll be right back. <laughs>
2: Veterans Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center, an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and service women of all generations. This center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, the American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade, held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the center's website at www.americanveteranscenter.org or call 703-302-1012. 703-302-1012. The American Veterans Center, 703-302-1012.
0: Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Jim Roberts, and my guest today is General Richard Myers, and we're talking about uh, his book, Eyes on the Horizon, uh, a memoir of his, um, of his life uh, in the military. General, before the break, uh, we've gotten through your high school um, education experience, sports, uh, music uh, the fact you learned to play the saxophone, which paid off later when you went to college at uh, Kansas State, I believe. You bet. And you were in a rock band there, which uh, I was. I came as a
1: great surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look like a rocker. Right? Well, I, um, it, it was uh, it was a way to earn money, and in mm-hmm. those days, uh, you know, we got I think we got ten dollars a piece for a gig, and uh, doesn't sound like much, but in the early '60s, uh, that was actually quite a bit. I, I can remember cashing a dollar check. At the local drugstore and getting a sandwich, getting a drink, and getting change back. So, so ten dollars went quite a, right, quite right. a ways in those days. Um, gasoline, I think, was twenty some cents a gallon. So, I mean, it, but it was uh, not only fun. It's always it's just really fun to make music. I think I'm a frustrated musician at heart. I wish I were a lot better uh, at it uh, because I I like music, all kinds of music, and I you know wish I'd ex- you know just maybe that had been a career if I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't right. gone into ROTC. But it was uh, it was a, a a great thing to do during college, as I said, to earn, earn that money, and uh, and help out with expenses. Right.
0: Um, and you mentioned ROTC, which was I think obli- obligatory at the campus. It was State.
1: obligatory, and I and I quip sometimes that uh, I'm really a draft dodger because uh, I went in ROTC was mandatory for mandatory for the first two years, optional by the time I got there for the second uh, year, junior and senior year. I elected to take it because I didn't mind serving. I just didn't want to be drafted. Mm-hmm. I wanted a little bit more say in, in where I might go off to. And, uh, I mean, I picked Air Force ROTC. It, I don't know why I picked the Air Force over the Army. They had the two two programs there. Uh, maybe they had the shorter line the day I enrolled. I mean, I don't. there was nobody in my family had served. I had an uncle who had um, served in World War II, but that was pretty far removed. My parents, nobody real close had served. So, you know, I was kind of making my own way here. Uh but went in the Air Force ROTC program, and uh, when I really caught f- fire was when they taught me to fly as part of the ROTC program, and I earned my private license there in Manhattan, Kansas, and that was that turned everything around for me. I just loved flying, and so I, it, it spurred on not only my interest in ROTC and getting a commission eventually, but also in my other schoolwork. I mean, it just kind of fired me up, and it was uh, gave me a real sense of purpose.
0: Uh, another extremely important development course at, at, at Kansas State was that you met uh, your future wife, Mary Jo.
1: I did. And we met, I think, my sophomore year and uh, were eventually married right before I went off to Poda training in the University Chapel there on the Kansas State University campus. And uh, we've been married now for coming up on uh, 40, 45 years here, 44, I'm sorry, this summer.
0: I had the pleasure of, uh, of meeting Mary Joe a few years ago, and I don't need to tell you how lucky you are. What a lovely lady, no. intelligent, uh, uh, lovely, um, personable, a tremendous asset. I'm sure. To, to I your don't career. think
1: I do it justice in the book in uh, uh, explaining what uh, what she meant to me, because uh, um, who knows where I'd have wound up if it hadn't been for uh, my best friend and. Uh, and a good critic too, and somebody that keeps you level-headed mm-hmm. as you go through the ranks. I mean, she would, it would, she would never let me, best she could, um, be arrogant or mm-hmm. or or try to be uh, infatuated with the uh, position that we had. She was always uh, well-grounded, kept me well-grounded, as do my children. They never give me any slack either. And that's all very. I think that's you need people like that around you. She is. She's very. She's very down-to-earth. She works very hard. She's uh, devoting a lot of her time now mainly to uh, military uh, charities and organizations that help uh, help the troops. She still does that, and uh, um, she's very actually very good at that. Yeah.
0: One of your predecessors, Admiral Moore, told me on this program, he said they say that a good wife can make you successful or happy. Mine made me successful and happy. I sense uh, that's the same I, way. It's exactly <laughs> the same
1: way, and as I said, we're 44 years this June, and, uh, you know, God willing, we'll we'll keep on going together. It's uh, it's great to go in this phase of life with somebody that you really like, mm-hmm. and like to be around, and that you um, have respect for, and that uh, that's mutual. I mean, it's just uh, it's just a real blessing.
0: All right. So so following uh, marriage um, at the end of your college career and uh, graduation, uh, you embarked on your Air Force career. Uh, tell us how that happened.
1: Well, off to pilot training, and uh, by now I loved flying. Uh, the fact that it had military utility was uh, interesting to me, but just flying was fun. And I thought pilot training was a, a great year, best year uh, so far of my life. Uh, a lot of people really struggled in pilot training. I didn't particularly. I had the engineering background, so the academics was pretty, uh, I wouldn't say easy, but easier. And uh, apparently uh, flying was came fairly naturally because I didn't get too many pink slips, didn't fail, didn't fail any rides, and did well through pilot training. And did well enough to have a choice of uh, what aircraft I got. Mary Jo had insisted, "Whatever you do, let's go back." I want to go back to Europe. She'd been there as a student, and she said, "Let's go back." I want to I'm go back to Europe. So it didn't matter what airplane was on the board there. I had to pick something that would take me to Europe, and I picked an F four Phantom, and off we went to Ramstein Air Base, Germany.
0: You are right that the uh, the Phantom was an especially challenging uh, aircraft to fly. Why was why is that?
1: Well, I think uh, it was. You know, it was it was big. It was heavy. Uh, it had uh, a two-person crew, and, uh, you know, the, the coordination required between two people in an aircraft like that, uh, is, it makes it a little bit more difficult than if it's a single-seater. Um, and then the missions it was assigned. It was assigned everything from air superiority to uh, dropping bombs uh, to nuclear uh, attack. Yeah. And when I went to Germany, we had to be qualified on all the conventional munitions, the bombs and the rockets and all that. We also had to be qualified and certified uh, for the nuclear mission, and uh, on top of that, we had, you know, an, an air-to-air mission as well. So, it, it physically it wasn't. I mean, it was a it was a big <laughs> brute of an airplane, um, but the what made it hard was the many missions that it was assigned, and it just. Uh, You were constantly, you know, running out of currency in one mission, having to catch up, and then you're behind in another mission, and then you had to catch up. It was very difficult to set up a training regimen that would keep you current and qualified in all the many tasks that higher headquarters wanted you to be current and qualified in.
0: General, we have to pause now for another commercial break. We'll be right back. This is Jim Roberts, president of the American Veterans Center. The mission of the American Veterans Center is to provide an outlet for our nation's military men and women of every generation to share their stories of valor. From our radio documentary series Veterans Chronicles and our magazine American Valor Quarterly to speaker conferences and the annual National Memorial Day Parade along the mall in Washington, D.C., the center is devoted to making sure that the public never forgets the service and sacrifice of those who have worn the uniform. To learn more about how you can support our efforts, visit AmericanVeteransCenter.org. Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Jim Roberts, and my guest today is uh, General Richard Myers, and we're talking about his memoir, Eyes on the Horizon. Uh, General, you um, you said that after uh, a pilot training, when you jo- when you um, went on to into active duty in the Air Force, uh, uh, your wife had hoped that your first duty station would be in Europe, and, uh, and indeed it was in Germany. You write though that that turned out to be the uh, a good choice in terms of career advancement. Uh, why was that?
1: Well. Um, uh- it, it was, and it, and it wasn't. I mean, it was uh, it was a good choice because we enjoyed our year and a half in, in Germany. But as soon as we got there, two things. I started out in the back seat as a pilot in the back seat of the F-4, which was the... Which was typical, right? Well, it was typical for those days. It's right. not, it, it, right. Later on, they put navigators back there right out of nav school. But in those days, it was typical to put a pilot. And, of course, what you wanted to do is upgrade as fast as you could to the front seat. Exactly. So, you know, you get there, and you, and you start talking to the personnel folks about when you might upgrade. And... There was so much uncertainty because of the Vietnam War and, and people moving back and forth, and all the turmoil associated with that that time frame in the uh, mid to late '60s, that nobody really had an idea. But they said one thing for certain: um, if you volunteer to go to Vietnam, fly in Vietnam, uh, that's a pretty sure way to get upgraded. So I hadn't been there, you know, but a month or two when I'm down in personnel saying, "How do I volunteer? Where's the volunteer paper here so I can?" Volunteer to go to combat. I had thought early that if I'm going to go to combat I'd like to go in the front seat of the F four, not in the back seat right and not I wasn't sure I had that choice But that was the way I was trying so it worked out that as uh, President Nixon as part of uh, reduction in our forces in Europe. We came back to Mountain home for a while And then I got to go to uh, an upgrade program in the F4 where I upgraded to the front seat and from there to uh, to Thailand to uh, to fly in the Vietnam conflict
0: uh, well, tell us a bit about that, uh, extremely uh, trying circumstances for uh, both Navy and Air Force pilots in that war well, in, in general.
1: Well, yes, it, uh, I mean, it was uh, it was the first time, basically, that we encountered not only an air-to-air threat uh, from the North Vietnamese, uh, but we also encountered surface-to-air missiles. These were missiles that were designed pretty much after World War II to deal with bombers that, uh, that had been experienced in World War II and these were uh, then Soviet-designed systems, uh, and while they were designed for bombers, they had they could ha- have a pretty big impact on on the fighter aircraft that were mainly flying in uh, and the bombers that were flying in over Vietnam and Laos. And so, and then of course you always had the the, the standard threat from uh, anti-aircraft fire, the AAA. Um, you know, as a as a captain over there flying combat, though, I'll tell you, you know, you. you there are times when you, th- if you think about it, right along, you know, you can think, you can worry about being shot down, about becoming a prisoner of war, um, and and whether you you're going to have the stamina and the fortitude and the perseverance to survive uh, prisoner of war status. And as I read these, the memoirs of these folks that were held in Hanoi, um, you know, you never know how you're going to react to that. I was never convinced I would hold up uh, half as well as those that did survive uh, that uh, terrible ordeal for. You know, five, six, seven years, just awful. But that you'd think about it then. But on the other hand, I mean, you're a captain. You're young. I uh, had no children at the time. I did have Mary Jo as my wife,
0: who came to and Thailand. And came she came to Thailand. Came to Thailand. She
1: said, if you're gonna if you're gonna <laughs> be put in harm's way, possibly die, I want to know what it smells like and feels like over there. So I'm, and the D- Department of Defense had a prohibition against uh, dependents, spouses, coming to uh, Thailand because there wasn't any infrastructure to take care of them. And uh, so I said you can 't come the the department doesn't want you to come. She says, "You mean an American citizen with a passport and a visa can 't come to Bangkok and I said, "Well, <laughs> I guess you can she says i 'm coming and so she came she had in the end she had um, three jobs, uh, all teaching uh, one at Chulalongkorn University, uh, where she was teaching English to uh, Thai students who were going to come on to the United States and and pursue a master 's uh, degree and so forth. So she was well integrated into the community there in Bangkok. She didn't rely on any DOD resources whatsoever, and uh, and we would see each other then. You know, every couple of months we were able to to get together. It was uh, it was it was nice. I was threatened through that uh, at one point that I'd be reassigned to Korea in a command post if I didn't send my wife home. And I, 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 I was this was a little bit of arrogance because I said I can't believe the Air Force would do that. I mean, I'm really needed here in this squadron. They don't have enough instructor pilots. I'm one of the few they have. I don't know how they could do without me, so I I bluffed and mm-hmm. uh, and somehow got by with my bluff. Knowing what I know now about the the personnel system, that was a pretty stupid thing to do. I should have. I mean, it, I took a real chance there because that could have been a <laughs> that could have been a career uh, downer to go to a command post instead of flying combat. So, but but the gamble worked. The gam it was a gamble and it worked. And uh, I think back on it, think how stupid I was to take the gamble, but I did.
0: Right. Uh, I'd like to mention your one of your predecessors again, Admiral Moore, uh, who was who was chairman during part of that period, and uh, it was evident to me that he was very frustrated in the way that the war was conducted. Uh, what are your reflections on the way the, the you know the as, war a was
1: captain, as a captain, as a captain, I reflect some of this in the book, but as a captain, uh, you know, I, you did, I didn't get wound up in the in the politics oh, of right. it or, or so forth. Um, if the commander in chief said this, is what we have to go do. Uh, that was uh, good enough for me in those days. More importantly, uh, if if we, with our airplanes, were able to stem the flow of uh, men and, uh, and military equipment to South Vietnam and help our army brethren out, that was also good enough for me. That's all I needed to know, and so uh, I didn't. I didn't think a lot about that. Uh, I did think about things like, uh, and I I talk about this in the book. Those were still the days before this Goldwater-Nichols Act in 80, 1986 that, that forced the services. Congress forced the services to work better together. It was before those days. So, you know, I, I think I talk about, uh, I think, the number seven Air Forces. And, uh, right. You know, there's the, the bomber force. There's the airlift force. There's 7th Air Force in Saigon. There's the uh, 13th Air Force in uh, in Thailand. Uh, there's the Navy. And there's the Marines. I mean, it was – and there's Army aviation on top of that. Uh, it was uh, reasonably well-coordinated but not well-coordinated. Everybody kind of had their own piece of the pie. In fact, they divided up North Vietnam to where the Air Force had certain route packs and the Navy had certain, what they called route packs, which was primarily where they would uh, fly. So it it was not anything like uh, today and not as well organized and probably not as efficient. So I remember that part about it, the organizational part. Um, On the other hand, uh, it was exhilarating time, you know, for a young man uh, again, no children and uh, it was, uh, I mean, it was a, it it was dangerous, um, but at the same time exhilarating.
0: Uh, dangerous. It was more dangerous. Uh, you're right. Uh, when you returned uh, for your second uh, tour of duty there in, in '72, right? The- right.
1: We came back as what they for what we call the Wild Weasel mission, which is to uh, try to suppress or destroy enemy surface air missiles. And uh, at that time, uh, the B-52s were starting to go further and further north. Uh, uh, the first one that was shot down was shot down over the middle of North Vietnam Route Pack Three, they call it, near a, a place called Vin. I think is where the, the SAM site was, or in that area, and um, and our job was to try to suppress these surface air missiles so they couldn't shoot down our aircraft. And those were usually four to five-hour missions, uh, several refuelings. We 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 we'd try to protect several different. Uh, mission packages during those four to five hours, and often at night, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, made it all all pretty sporting. Uh, the good thing about night is that if a surface-air missile is fired in your vicinity, you can very quickly tell whether it's on you or it's on somebody else. And in the daytime, it's not quite as obvious, but at night, you see this blow from the, the rocket motor, and if it's uh, steady on your canopy, if it's not moving on your canopy, that means it's on you. But if it's moving on your canopy... Uh, then that means it's on somebody else, and mm-hmm. uh, so you can quit. And, and you can see all the AAA that's fired, and uh, you might you might say, "Well, I wouldn't like that." Well, you do like it because you can also tell where that's going, and um, and you can uh, it's easier to avoid or easier to know if you're under attack and have to take some evasive maneuvers.
0: You were awarded the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross for your service in Vietnam. What was the specific incident that
1: uh, – Both of my – I've got uh, two Distinguished Flying Crosses from Vietnam, and they were basically both end-of-tour Distinguished Flying Crosses if you accumulated enough missions and so forth. I never had one particular mission that earned it. And as I as I talked to our World War II friends, uh, the B-17 crews and so forth that were 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, flying over right. over Germany, 12-person uh, uh, 12, 12 crews that would – you know get shot out of the sky and then uh, either become POWs or or die in the effort uh the things that they endured i mean i had it easy i'm not you know that was sort of the standard thing we we got when we left but uh uh there was no single mission it was an accumulation of my 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 tour at that time and a lot of air medals because uh in my first tour i was a fast forward air controller in the second tour of this wild weasel and we accumulated because they were considered a little more hazardous than the routine missions, uh, we accumulated air medals. Uh, we got an air medal for every ten missions we flew in those two those two uh, mission areas. Mm-hmm.
0: Following uh, Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, you were on, I believe, to Okinawa. Is that correct? Uh, Went on to were two yes. children. You were for two children,
1: we were right? Born. I had two uh, two children born in Okinawa. One before uh, Okinawa reverted to uh, uh, Japanese uh, control, and one after reverted to Japanese control, also under uh, President Nixon. And, uh, it's, and, and it's reflected in the paperwork for both of them. There, it's different paperwork. But uh, a, that was a a great place, a great base there at Kadena Air Base in, in Japan. Problem is uh, I was gone over 300 days a year uh, other places in the Asia Pacific while we were stationed there. So for the two and a half years we're there, I'm barely home. I remember one time having to take the airplanes and evacuate them to, North Korea, or to, uh, to Korea to get them out of the way of a typhoon. And I call back. So I'm in. I'm in this officers' club. I'm having a cheeseburger and a beer. And I call my wife down in Okinawa. I said, "Well, how's it going?" And she had one child in a crib, the other child in her arms. And you can hear the rain and the wind beating the shutters. She says, "Well, I think we'll be okay as long as I keep the mop out, mop mop this water. And I think we'll be just fine." And so there she is, putting up with that. And I'm up there, you know, playing pool with the guys because we had to we had to make sure our airplanes were safe. Unfair for sure, yeah. but. Uh, no, we we liked our assignment there. And Mary Jo, I, I always say, well, we had a great time in Okinawa. Mary Jo says, no, you were never here. You don't know. <laughs> right. uh, I had a great time, but you know, you don't you don't have a right to even say because you were you were gone about uh, over about three quarters of every year. You were out of here. I right. Right. Uh, over the
0: next uh, fifteen years or so, you you um, had many duty changes, uh, many promotions. Uh, I can't go through each one of these um, uh, individually, but I'd like you to kind of walk us through. This period uh, I, uh, and summarize if you will. I was
1: really fortunate I, after Okinawa, I got to go to Nellis Air Force Base and uh, be an instructor at the weapons school um, out of there uh, was promoted to major, and I came out on the school's list, which was uh, sort of surprising to me that I guess about the top ten or fifteen percent of a promotional list goes to on to uh, advanced professional military education. so I went off to Air Command and Staff College, Maxwell Air Force Base, then to the Pentagon. Uh, I'd never been promoted early, but in the Pentagon, um, after a, cu- a couple of years there, I was promoted early to lieutenant colonel, sent off to the Army War College. Um, really enjoyed my year. That was another great year in our career was the Army War College. And uh, from there down to Seymour, John. What do, you, what do you say that? Uh... Well, because they, are, they were prepared at Carlisle Barracks there uh, in those days. The, the class came in, and the commandant stood up and said, listen, this is your year. If you want to... Uh, do research on something you've been that's just been nagging at you for a long time. We'll send you anywhere in the world. We'll give you whatever resources you want. The only requirement is if you're gonna, if we're gonna spend a lot of money on you for doing this research. You better produce uh, the number of pages that would be equivalent to that amount of money. Or he said, if you want to just devote this time to your family because you've been too busy in command or whatever you've been. Most of the people there had just come out of uh, battalion command. Mm-hmm. In my case, I just came out of a staff. Now it was hard work, but it wasn't like in command. But so. Uh, and it worked out well because everybody there was pretty much type A personality, so people worked very hard. But it was your year, and, and the and the whole college was set up to to enable you to uh, expand your professional competence or whatever you – I mean, you could do whatever you want to do. If you want to spend a lot of time on the golf course, you could do that. I can guarantee you very few people uh, did that. But it, but it was your year, and it was just – the Army did that just perfectly. It was very nice. From there, uh, down to Seymour Johnson, very fortunate to get a, an F-4 squadron a command promoted to colonel and thinking hey, my whole goal my whole career is to be a squadron commander. I did that. Now I'm promoted to colonel. Uh what in the world do I do? <laughs> I had no goal. And so I, I well I'm trying to figure out what my next goal is. Uh, asked to come up and work in headquarters uh, tactical air command at the time in at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia uh, in in the personnel business. My best friend, he goes off to from F4s. He got promoted at Seymour as well. He goes to F15s and I go to this staff job in personnel, which I'd never been in in my life, and not not into assignments, which is kind of semi-glorious, but to um, uh, personnel plans and programs. I didn't know what I was getting into, and I thought, well, they're sending me a big signal here. It turned out, again, that was a great assignment. I worked with some wonderful people. General Billy Bowles retired as the commander of our Air Training Command. Uh, General Norm Lease retired as a three-star, and he was working up in uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense when he retired. I learned so much about them, about how to take care of people. And then um, uh, from there back to commandant of the weapons school, back at Nellis, um, which was my first command, Tindall Air Force Base, first wing command. Back to Langley, uh, commander of the first TAC fighter wing, where I was promoted to brigadier general, and uh, did a lot of jobs around Langley Air Force Base at headquarters, tactical air command, as a as a one star. Um, moved to the Pentagon, promoted to two stars. Uh, and then up there, nominated for three stars as the uh, commander of U.S. Forces Japan, and um, went there. And I thought coming out of Japan as a three star, I told Marie jo, I said, Why don't this is such a fulfilling assignment we've just had in, near Tokyo here at Yokota Air Base? Why don't we just call it quits? Because you know, I'm not going to get promoted again, so why don't we just quit and, and <laughs> declare victory? And she said, I think there's more adventure. And uh, huh. I, I wanted to give her a chance to say, "Uncle, we've been doing this now for right, well right. over 30 years." I, you know, maybe she, but she didn't say, "Uncle." She said, "No, there's more adventure." So, came back. I was assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Shalikashvili, for a year, and then selected to be the commander of uh, Pacific Command out in Hawaii, a four-star position. Then to Space Command and North American Aerospace Defense Command and Air Force Space Command back in Colorado Springs and eventually as vice chairman and then nominated to be chairman. So that's a kind of brief synopsis. Uh, every every promotion over colonel was a complete – I mean, I just never was thought this it was – a complete same. surprise? Sure. <laughs> it should, actually, it should be because that's the way the military is. But it, I, I sort of didn't expect it, matter of yeah. fact.
0: Well, very few make four-star, let's say. Uh, and I explained
1: uh, explain <laughs> in the book that each one, of these, uh, each one of these senior assignments, they kept saying, well, you're going to go to the Pacific Air Forces. And I remember uh, General Ryan, the chief of staff, said, uh, serve out there for – Three years, but if you you know if you think you've done all you you can do in two years, you know just retire. That's fine. And then I got to Colorado, and then they moved me to Colorado Springs. And Secretary Cohen said, uh, "We'd like you to serve two years and retire." I said, "Fine." And then he, a little later, somebody called and said, "No, we want you to be there three years and retire." I said, "Fine." <laughs> and so I was here a year and a half. And the next thing I know, I'm the vice chairman. And uh, so it, you you never know. And I'm not sure you should know. I think at that level, you. Which, what's expected of you is to serve whatever the Secretary of Defense or the Service Secretary or your Chief of your Service wants you to do.
0: Right, General, we have to pause now for a brief commercial break. We'll be back for our final segment right after this break.
2: Veterans Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center, an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and servicewomen of all generations. This center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, the American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade, held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the center's website at www.americanveterancenter.org or call 703-302-1012. 703-302-1012. The American Veterans Center, 703-302-1012.
0: Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Jim Roberts, and my guest today is General Richard B. Myers, uh, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and author of "Eyes on the Horizon: Serving on the Front Lines of National Security." All right, General. uh, We're now up to um, uh, the beginning of your service as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. First question is: What is the relationship, uh, legally speaking, first of all, between the Chairman
1: and the Secretary of Defense? Well, Jim, um, it's one of the first things I (laughs) I looked up to make sure I understood what the legal obligations are and the. And the statutes call for the chairman to be the principal military advisor to the president and the National Security Council. Uh, and, of course, your immediate boss is the secretary of defense, who is uh, a member of the National Security Council for sure. Uh, and and it, um, to go a little bit further, the the statute also says that while you're the principal military advisor, as you advise people, uh, you have to include the advice of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the vice chairman and the, and the service chiefs of the various services. And if their advice differs from yours, you have to represent their advice. So uh, if, the, if the Army chief had a different point of view, I'd be obligated to say, well, here's my point of view, but by the way, you need to know that uh, General so-and-so, the Army chief, mm-hmm. has has this different view. Um, having said that, so we I don't think in my, in my tenure we never had one of those cases where I had to say, here's what I believe, but you need to know a service chief believes differently. We would work very hard at working through the issues, as you might expect, especially when the nation's at war, uh, which it was as soon as I took over. I mean, seven days after I take over as chairman, we're in Afghanistan. Yeah, in Afghanistan. So was, basically, we're at war the whole time I'm chairman. Uh, we'd work very hard to make sure that uh, the chiefs had worked through the problems where we could all agree on uh, on the major issues uh, that we wanted to present to our uh, civilian bosses. Uh, but that's that's the main there's lots of other responsibilities the chairman has, but that's the main one. You're the principal military advisor to the, uh, and you're an advisor. The chain of command runs from the president to the secretary of defense to the field commanders. So you're not in the command chain, but by uh, tradition, uh, all the inf- all the communication flows through uh, the chairman uh, to the field and back to the secretary. So you're you're well, you have to be well informed, and that's one way to keep you well informed uh following
0: up on that one of your uh one of the the chiefs was uh, that, that you work with was General Shinseki mm-hmm. uh who was thought by some to have been um been badly treated uh because he gave uh, advice uh, on force levels that he thought would be required in Iraq that didn't sync with uh, with that of the overall command structure in the Pentagon your your take on that
1: well i cover this in the book and uh, he he at, at the time and it just came out maybe about a year ago or 9 months ago a copy of the letter he sent to Secretary Rumsfeld uh, after he retired, which explained that uh, the the number he gave in the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing was uh, a number probably larger than required uh, to give the secretary and to give General Franks, the unified commander responsible for planning uh, all the Iraq uh, operations, uh, enough leeway to do what they wanted to do. So I think it's been widely uh, misinterpreted, misperceived, about what he, uh, what he meant and and what meant by it, and of course he was in on all the discussions with the secretary and with the president, as the president's asking us, you know, if we have any concerns mm-hmm. about going in into, into Iraq, and uh, we explained all that, uh, and nobody had any 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 concerns or any reason to uh, to not go with the plan that General Franks had developed. Now it is true that there was uh, real tension between uh, General Senseki and the civilian leadership in the Pentagon. Um, I've been working now for <laughs> several years trying to figure out okay what was the genesis of that problem. But there were some there were some hard feelings I think that came out of the first quadrennial defense review and it it colored the way um, uh, I think he was uh, perceived by the senior military leadership. That's a that's really unfortunate. What was what was even more unfortunate I think and I cover this in the book as well. Um, When General Susecki had this this Senate hearing where he was actually forced to give a number or felt like he was forced to give this number, um, he was criticized by the senior uh, officials in the Defense Department. That is wrong. If a senior military person uh, wants to give his advice, if he's in front of a a Senate hearing, if you disagree with what he says, call him in privately and say, why did you say that? I mean, you can't dismiss somebody like General Susecki who has – Years and years of experience. He's he's battle tested, and uh, you've got to listen. And if so, you don't you don't do that in the public press. I think that was a, a huge mistake. And I, I told. Uh, was, I think it was a time Secretary Wolfowitz. Wolfowitz I said, when I recalled it. I said, uh, you know that that was a real mistake. Uh, he agreed it was a mistake, but it was too late. You know he'd already mm-hmm. been criticized. So that just kind of fueled the fire that was already going in terms of this. Um, relationship that had not been going very well. Now, it turns out that General Suseki served his four, uh, his, his four years out and uh, I think did an admirable job and was at the forefront of transforming the Army to deal with the security challenges of the 21st century and get away from the the Cold War uh, paradigms.
0: As you mentioned um, earlier, uh, within seven days of your taking office as chairman, uh, we were involved in Afghanistan, one of the most unusual conflicts Military conflicts in American history. I know you, you write about Secretary Rumsfeld used to like to show these pictures of of our forces. They're riding horseback, carrying this high tech uh, yeah. high tech uh, gear to call in uh, airstrikes. And uh,
1: you, you know when they when they asked for airdrop of hay and saddles, <laughs> Western saddles, because these uh, these uh, Tajik or whatever saddles they were on were, were they're pretty <laughs> made of wood and leather. They're pretty hard on your on your body. I said, hey, can you get us some Western saddles and and my guess is a lot of those folks hadn't had any riding experience. I'm sure part of their training did not include sure. um, horsemanship. Uh, maybe it will in the future. But it was, I think, uh, that model of uh, linking up indigenous forces with um, uh, small groups of uh, special forces uh, with uh, Air Force enlisted members there that had all the comms and the communications gears and the and the, and the targeting equipment to call in, uh, Precision guided weapons, which kind of changed everything, uh, to bring that that air power to bear on this uh, on the adversary, very powerful. Uh-huh. Can you imagine somebody over there in Afghanistan who is they're used to fighting at fairly fairly long ranges? Not a lot of people getting hurt on a daily basis, and they said, you know, the uh, Northern Alliance folks that we were allied with said, well, see that target complex? If you could take that out, that would be very helpful. And all of a sudden. From overhead, these uh, satellite-guided weapons, you don't hear the airplane. All the, all of a sudden, the thing, this weapon hits it, it disappears. And, uh, I mean, it's almost like it's from God. And so right. they I think it had a huge psychological impact on, uh, on both sides, matter of fact. And it was a very powerful uh, way to put our force together. So when Kabul fell, you know, we probably had less than a couple thousand troops in the whole country. And the Taliban, Al Qaeda's run. The Taliban is run. A lot of them have been killed or captured. And uh, we have an interim government, and and on we go.
0: How about the? Uh, I think it was Operation Anaconda, the, where we tried to get uh, Bin Laden, and he escaped. Uh, that was actually a
1: Torabore. Torabore, yes, Jim. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and and, and um, you know, there's the many morning, morning quarterbacks criticize, say, "Well, you you you, you messed that one up." Uh, General, I think General Franks's view was, uh, we've got a lot of Al Qaeda in the Tora Bora area. Uh, we don't have a lot of forces in country yet. If we wait to bring those forces in, which would take weeks, uh, then they're going to they're going to dissipate. Mm-hmm. So we need to go now. And and we had to rely on indigenous forces to some extent. We had small numbers. We probably had a big impact on on uh, killing and capturing a lot of Al Qaeda. The The one we were really after, if he was really there, uh, never know for sure, Uh, but he he kind of escaped over probably into Pakistan, where uh, I think most people guess he's still still today. today. Some have
0: observed that so quick and decisive was our victory in Afghanistan that uh, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld's standing was sky high, and had he retired at that point, he would have gone down as one of the great secretaries of defense, but that instead... Uh, because of all the problems that ensued in Iraq, uh, his uh, reputation fell into uh, disrepute in some sectors, anyway. What's your your take on that?
1: Well, um, a couple of things. Um, going into Iraq was basically, you know, not, uh, Afghanistan was a, was fairly popular. Iraq was not right. uh, popular, although Congress did authorize uh, the United States uh, to go into Iraq. So we, uh, and and I think. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld became the point person for the administration on on the whole war, but particularly on Iraq. But he wasn't; he didn't have the authority over all the rest of the uh, government to uh, to bring all instruments of national power to bear on the Iraq problem. So it became mainly a, a military effort, and and clearly things didn't go exactly as uh, some had thought. Uh, that but most thought, right? Most well, I don't know. See, I think the military was never did never. Totally buy into this idea, well, the Iraqis are going to welcome us, and this is, they'll take over their own affairs, and it'll all be uh uh flowers and and hugs and kisses here uh, i don't think we thought that some did um, and I think the flexibility of the military to f- to flex through this uh this period was uh, probably one of the more important things uh it was a it was a difficult obviously it still is difficult in, in iraq uh, a very difficult period, but by the time I had left office. Uh, Iraqis had voted for a constitution at their own risk. Everybody remembers the blue fingers. up. They had uh, yeah. about ready to elect a parliament and then elect a government. Uh, they elected a parliament right after I left office, and then the government was installed early in in or in, uh, in 2006, in the spring of 2006. Uh, there was still the insurgency going on, and then, of course, in 2007, the bombing of the mosque in Samara uh, set off this sectarian violence that got way out of hand and the surge uh, Ensued and all that sort of thing, so that, so so we know the story. But um, I think you know, being the point person, Secretary Rumsfeld, being the point person for the administration, uh, putting him in a, in a position when things weren't going well, uh, that he would he would draw criticism, and that's uh, that's unfortunate because uh, um, uh, he was uh, a lot. He was very collaborative in working with his military, uh, the military leadership, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, the field commanders, uh, you know, one of the, the some of the conventional wisdom is if he just listened to his generals. Well, he listened to us all the time, mm-hmm. and every 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 decision he took or the president took was based on the advice we gave him. And we didn't. Our advice was not uh, much different than than the the course that they they chose. So um, those it was just it was the most difficult task I think this country's ever undertaken is to go into a a country like Iraq with the various factions uh, al-Qaeda came to the sounds again so you have to you have to worry about al-Qaeda in Iraq after a major combat as well and it just be it's just a very very hard thing to do the fact that we're here we are uh, you know f- 6 almost 6 years later with uh, a, a constitution a prime minister that uh, looks like he's doing a fairly decent job and and has pretty good backbone prime minister Maliki um i mean you got uh, it's been relatively i'd say relatively Successful. I think all the leadership in Iraq, though, says, "Hey, it could revert, so we've got to be careful here." But I think we're on a pretty good path there.
0: If I, if I'm summarizing correctly, you were happy with the invasion plan for uh, Iraq, which worked, which worked uh, very well, and but you were uneasy about the occupation I, planning. I was right very
1: there. uneasy because uh, Central Command was focused on major combat, which is pretty reasonable. That's what we do best. But they didn't focus on uh, what we call phase four, the stability and reconstruction. And the the initial plan was for the military to be the provisional authority for some time in the future until it looked like we might give it either over to Iraqis or to a civilian provisional authority. But the decision was made in in May, right after major combat, Iraq's pretty quiet. There's not a lot of insurgency at that point and, and not a lot of Americans or coalition forces being killed. And so we very quickly went to a civilian provisional authority, with the idea that the Iraqis would see this uh, not as an occupying force, but as a as a, a group there to help them get back on their feet, and uh, and that was good rationale. Uh, but we found out as the year went on, and as we get into the uh, the, the winter and, and spring of '04, that uh, the insurgency now is building, the Al Qaeda is becoming more powerful. And in June of 04, we take our military structure, which had been a three-star, and we place that three-star with a three-star responsible for the tactical operations in Iraq and a four-star to work with then our ambassador in Iraq. So we had to completely revamp the way we were approaching the problem. And um, But that was, you know, we had to learn as we went. But, yes, I was not happy with the initial planning done by the military. I think there was a lot of uh, planning done for the stability and reconstruction phase. It was in our execution uh, some of the leadership, I mean, it, was just, it, it just didn't did not go very well, some of which I think uh, I could have anticipated, not just looking back, but I, at the time there some things, as I mentioned in the book, some things I probably should have done that uh, at least advice I should have given that might have made that a little bit better.
0: Final question. Uh, at the end of the book you uh, advanced some policy uh, suggestions for, um, for reform in our national security system. you want to summarize some of those? You bet.
1: Well, it, it all hinges off uh, the fact that I think we have a lack of a – a comprehensive strategy to deal with violent extremism. So I talk about what I call the global insurgency uh, that that we have with violent extremism uh, around the globe and then a strategy that we that we ought to develop and, and, and how we ought to deal with it, which basically involves all inst- instruments of national power, not predominantly the military instrument, but all instruments. And then I talk about, Jim, the thing you ask about is uh, how do we organize to do this? And one of the frustrations as chairman was the president would say, okay, Go forth and do this mission, and it's a mission that requires not only the Department of Defense but Department of State, Commerce, Treasury, Justice, uh, many other uh, departments and agencies in our government. But there's no way to harness all that power. And so uh, think tanks around this town have been thinking about this problem, people a lot smarter than me about how we organize for this have thought about this. But we're basically organized uh, – by the National Security Act of 1947, and and that was a you know came about because of our experiences in World War II. So, in a facetious way, we are perfectly organized for World War II. <laughs> now we're a little better because we've, we over time we're uh, we've modified the National Security Act, but we're still not. I don't think organized for the threats we're going to face in the 21st century. Uh, my proposal is that uh, we have more of a temporary arrangement to organize for major issues like Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, some people are calling for a fundamental review, which would require not only the executive branch but the legislative branch to come to terms on this. I think that might be too hard. I have a simpler solution where we d- we 've got to put people in charge that have the responsibility and authority to carry out uh, the the policy of the u s government and then can be held accountable. We really never had that for Iraq or Afghanistan or or our global war or on terror, which I call our the global insurgency uh, you know, you might say, "Well, it's Rumsfeld." Well, he never had the authority to tell the other departments and agencies what to do. Uh, he was held accountable, and I think in some cases, uh, uh, mistakenly so, because and the president can't be—he can't be the one that's imp- responsible for the execution of this. So, I have some uh, a solution there where um, the, the president can can uh, appoint somebody at cabinet level that would be responsible, have the authority, and be held accountable for. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen it before in the Clinton administration when I was. Uh, assistant to the chairman. Uh, It worked out pretty well uh, in Plan Colombia. President Clinton uh, appointed Tom Pickering, who was the Deputy Secretary of State, to be that person for Plan Colombia. And actually, that was a much simpler task than Iraq or Afghanistan or global insurgency, but one that worked out fairly well because we knew who was in charge and who was going to be, who had the authority and who would be held accountable if it didn't go well. Uh, We never quite had that for uh, the issues that we were involved in when I was chairman. Interesting points, uh, General. Uh,
0: interesting book. There's much more that could be said about this book. Uh, I found it a terrific read, a great story, and, uh, and a challenging book in terms of the policy um, uh, reforms you advocate. But uh, we're unfortunately out of time. But it's been a great pleasure having you here as my my guest. And uh, Jim, think- it's been
1: great being with you. And I hope uh, people, there's there's a lot of lessons learned in this book. Obviously, and uh, in the end, it's all about it's all about the, the troops. And uh, uh, one of the reasons you you serve. One of the reasons I was. Uh, privilege to serve as chairman is that you know you get so much energy from those folks out there trying to do the job and I never went to Afghanistan or Iraq where I didn't come back more optimistic uh, and more pumped up than I did when you're out there visiting people actually trying to get the mission and that's where it happens it's not doesn't happen here in Washington DC a lot of what I talk about is what happens here at the highest levels of government uh, but hopefully we represented our troops well because they're the ones that in the end get the job done.
0: Well you mentioned our troops and uh, the fact is you were the number one Uh, In that that chain of command And I thank you for your service to our country And I wish you the best in the book Thank you Jim, great to be with you My guest today on Veterans Chronicles Has been uh, General Richard B. Myers Former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff And author of Eyes on the Horizon Serving on the front lines of national security
2: This has been Veterans Chronicles Produced by Radio America And the American Veterans Center In association with Pelcom Communications